Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fun show for you this evening. It's a reunion here on Social Flight Live of the AVSIG Bulletin Board from the early days of aviation, community, online, all this great stuff. And so I uh, can't wait to get started with that. Before we get started, I, just a couple quick things. First of all, of course, summer is now here. Most folks are out there and it's time to get flying and support general aviation. We are seeing more in-person events starting with pancake breakfasts and fly-ins and type club groups. And yet we're still not back to those types of numbers that we had before the pandemic. So we really need to get out there and kind of show the love, go out there, uh, get yourself flying and go to some of these in-person events to support all of these organizations. And you can find it all on socialflight.com or the Social Flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. It is free. There are so many events out there. All you need to do is just go there, log in, be sure to view the map, see all the things happening near you. We even have a hamburgers button that you can push and just see where there's food, uh, great stuff going on. So be sure to check that out. In addition, if you're actually flying with Social Flight mobile app, then if you go to any airport, you can check in and be part of the Fly to Win Challenge. And we are currently giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. That's a $6,000 value. July 1st, we give away that prize. We are always giving away prizes here on Social Flight. I love it. And again, all you need to do is just get that app, get out there, fly, check in at an airport, and you are in the challenge. So with that now, I'd just like to introduce AVSIG and talk to you a little bit about this wonderful evening that we've got uh, scheduled here for you. Back in the early days of the internet, communities of like-minded individuals found a new tool to communicate, and that was the bulletin board. In an aviation world, the, the premier bulletin board for aviation was known as AVSIG. And some of the people who were the most active in the early days of AVSIG remained some of the most influential contributors to general aviation to this day. Tonight, Social Flight Live is hosting a virtual reunion of just a few of the remarkable folks that made up AVSIG. George Brawley of General Aviation Modifications, GAMI, and Mike Bush of Savvy Aviation are here as are Scott Dyer and Paul Milner. Paul's been flying since 1978, is co-founder of the Cardinal Type Club and an unleaded Avgas engineering consultant to both AOPA and the FAA. Scott's been flying for over 35 years. He's a flight instructor based at Westchester and has also uh, been and continues to be a liaison between the Westchester Tower and New York Trecon. And so uh, unfortunately, Barry Schiff was unable to join us at the last minute after having an orthopedic medical issue that happened uh, to him, but he assures me he'll recover to his old self soon. And um, 
and of course, we're all sending him our wishes for a speedy recovery as well. And so tonight is a celebration of the history of the online aviation community because long before YouTube and Facebook was there, it was people on dial-up modems that set the stage for the future of general aviation online. And I'm gonna bring them now online here with George and Mike and Paul and Scott. And let's get the gang here together. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, George Brawley, Mike Bush, Scott Dyer, and Paul Milner. How are all you guys? Excellent. Hello, Jeff. Great to be here. We're, well, we're, thank we're you all so, about, so we're much. We're thinking about 1,200 baud. <laughs> versus 300 <laughs> You know, that's a good point, right? What we're doing tonight, could you have even dreamed of this in the days when you would dial and maybe put the handset into the old modem? Yeah. No. Um, let's, let's like talk about how it each start, uh, got started. Mike, we'll start with you, but how, do you remember when you first found out about or how you got started on AppSig? Oh, I don't know. I thought everybody knew about Avicii back then. It was, this was, of course, pre-internet. And uh, um, I don't remember exactly, but boy, we, we were all so heavily involved in that thing. It was... Mike, uh, it was before 1991 because I got on in June of 91 and you were already there. Yeah. <laughs> I got on in about 89, Mike, and you were already there. Oh, geez. So you, you must have gotten the CompuServe uh, little floppy guys, long before any of any, well, than I did anyway. You guys are all going to gang up on me and make me feel. <laughs> They're going to say, you don't, you don't remember because you were there waiting for the first person to join. <laughs> In the beginning. Uh, Paul, do you remember uh, some of the early, uh, the earliest I, I stuff? I I bought a, an Apple II computer because I thought it was so cool that you could have a computer in your home, even though it was uh, two months of salary for that Apple II computer back then. And, uh, and I thought, oh, gee, now I got this. What am I going to do with it? Because I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And uh, so first I bought a 110 baud modem. And I guess the advantage of that is as the messages downloaded from uh, from Absig, you could actually read them in real time as they scrolled across your screen. <laughs> You didn't have to wait. Uh, and then I remember it was a huge investment. I think it was a whole paycheck to buy a 1200 baud modem when those became available. That was that was a big wingding. I think I made my own power supply for that day to, to, to save a few dollars. But <laughs> I started, I joined CompuServe, went to Radio Shack, and I bought the little CompuServe introduction package and uh, started poking around there and you know found a bunch of, uh, of bizarre communities. But then I found this aviation thing. And so, well, that seems pretty cool. And uh, I had been flying at that point for, for three years. And uh, I guess the rest is history. I, I didn't, I bought my airplane two years after that. So I, I have, I was on CompuServe before I even owned the airplane. <laughs> wow. You know, people, I, I think a lot of people may not even know who are joining and watching tonight uh, that when you go back to those days, it wasn't even real time, as you mentioned. You would you would dial up and download everything that was there because time and access to the internet was very expensive. And so you'd download it, then you'd write, then you'd post up. <laughs> well, the trust fund babies could do it in real time because they could just sit there. And, but, uh, but even just uh, dialing up and downloading, there were months that I'd spend $100 on CompuServe fees, you know? Hmm. 
Wow. Scott, what are your, some of your uh, things that you remember yeah. from early? I, I, I got on initially, and by having the CompuServe book package and the big floppy disk and all of that, and it had something called CompuServe Information Manager, CIM, which allowed you to kind of download this stuff and stay online, right? So it would leave you on at 300 or 1200 baud or whatever it was. And this was a great boon, at least for CompuServe, because you were paying them money because you were still online. It was not log on, download everything, log off, do your reading, do your do your composing, and then log on again. And Bloop, everything gets burped upstream and you're on and off as quickly as you can. So CompuServe Information Manager was a money pit for CompuServe. And one of the best things that came around was a guy who was it? Somebody by the name of Wilkes, I think, Paul, who had TAPSIS, which is the access program for CIS, CompuServe Information Service. And it did this burst upload and download. And it was mm. about eight bucks for TAPSIS. But that was sunk cost. You were done with that. And then you could just do it forever, and your costs were relatively minimal at that point because you were doing everything as efficiently as possible. So Tapsis was a godsend. And really the only reason why I could even remotely consider affording this. I mean, I was a poor, struggling professional with a young family. And uh, yeah, a couple hundred dollars a month. you got to be kidding me. Who does that? That's that's amazing. And and what we also I find fascinating is when you talk about AVSIG, the it's like the biggest names of today all come up. Everyone knows the people that were there early on are some of the leaders of, of everything to this day of different groups and technologies, the folks we have here tonight. What is it? What's the chicken and egg on this? Was it that the people who got involved early, like were were very passionate and became this, or did it attract that? Do you think? I think part of the part of the solution to that question is uh, is market penetration. At one point, uh, there were uh, there something like six hundred thousand pilots in the United States, and about three hundred thousand of them had been on CompuServe for the last couple of months. So it, it was the place because there, there wasn't really an internet yet, right? And uh, so everybody would have to have their uh, their place to, to have a sense of community. So AOL had theirs and CompuServe had theirs. I mean, it was a big deal when those different services started linking. So you could actually send email from a CompuServe account to an AOL account. It's like, wow, you know, isn't that cool? We could never do that before. And then, <laughs> and then uh, I remember when uh, my... I worked for Chevron for 38 years when Chevron connected and I can actually send email from my CompuServe account to my Chevron account at work and I can actually send a file back and forth and, and work on it on my Apple computer at home and then take it to work and, and work on my PC at work. It's like, this is all magic stuff. Of course, they were all text files, you know, no formatting. Right. George, so, I, uh, I, I think that was the solution to the penetration is it was it was the only show in, sound, in town. The, yeah, there really the wasn't any any... Competition. No competition. AOL didn't have anything comparable. Fascinating. George, what do you remember of some of the earliest uh, days of doing that? Oh, I had been deeply in debt and I made a little money in the spring of 91. And so I decided I was going to do what I'd wanted to do for a long time. I was been borrowing a Bonanza to fly. And uh, so I was going to buy a Bonanza. So I got on found out or heard about CompuServe, and I got on to start asking questions on how to go about buying a Bonanza. 
And uh, so there was a lot of help there. John Haverland, remember John Haverland? Oh, yeah. Uh, John knows me real, real well. And what's really unique about that, he his airplane was an A-36-222 Sierra Delta. And when John got ready to sell that airplane, I had one of my friends here in town buy it because I knew the airplane and it was a good airplane. That airplane still parked two T-hangers down from my airplane to this day. And, you know, that's been 40 years ago. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, that worked out fine. I found the airplane. I bought it in early August and I hit it. And on my uh, wedding anniversary on August the uh, 8th, uh, or August the 7th, I took my wife to the airport and said, I want to show you your wedding present or your anniversary. <laughs> present. And I, I had the plane in the maintenance shop. We had a really good maintenance shop and paint shop here in eight at the time. And so I had them sitting in there and they had it all polished and, I had him raise the door and I told her, I said, here's your anniversary present. And uh, so she was thrilled, immediately named the airplane and still have that airplane to this day. <laughs> uh, just to ask you one of those yes or no questions, George, yes or no, that was your first wife, right? <laughs> it was my first wife, but I've not ever been married again since. So. <laughs> Uh, we have tons of people that keep putting online like what their like hardware was that they had and and the actual like there's the the numbers for I guess what was the username at the time that people had so it certainly brings a ring rings a lot of bells for people yeah, that's Chris, for sure. I had a trash dos two Radio Shack tr trash dos two Wow that's like well someone said I remember the TRS eighty that was just put on. <laughs> that's that's really something now was it uh organized in a way that was uh similar to what's uh, what still kind of exists today on things like beach talk and things like that where you still had like kind of headings or i guess no categories at all just threads i don't remember yeah yeah that's a hard one to try to remember because we clearly had specific threads that were limited to topics and there was always a battle, as there is on all the forums today, about thread drift. And uh -huh. some people were better at it keeping to the thread than others. And I have to admit, a lot of times I wasn't. Uh, but whether there were different subject matters like avionics and engines and IFR and all that, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just the latest stuff as to what was going on. I'm gonna every once in a while I'm gonna read off some of this because it's so much fun. So we've got Atari ST. That was one of the ones that people were using to get in. And the other one is the 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 wonderful Commodore 64. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if if memory serves, when I first got on, I was doing it using a home built MSI 8080. <laughs> yes. You were. Computer that I, that I soldered all the stuff together myself, and uh, I was using it, some sort of a, a serial video terminal with a cathode ray tube. Oh, wow. <laughs> Irradiating oh, yourself and, and doing it. To, even That sounds even more custom-made than Heathkit. So, did anybody remember the computer that John Deacon had that he hauled all over the world in the 747? Was it, it was a Toshiba of some sort? That was, no, that was later. This was okay. before. This what was the computer that was kind of the, about the size of a suitcase? 
Yeah, it was yes. the very first, very first quote okay. portable computer. I, I, I'm visualizing it. I, I'm trying to remember what the, what the brand name was, but I think, oh, that was Compact made that. Yes, I think that's right. Wait, it was we, not. Yeah, no, they, the, they were twenty pounds. Is that the one where the keyboard came off the top and had a handle like that you carry it? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I remember I remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. And people are talking now, of course, the the, the early. It's going by too fast to even read, of course. But IBM PS2s, I, I had an IBM G, PC Junior. <laughs> they they can used to have the 747 run for JAL from John F. Kennedy to uh, uh, what? Narita? Yeah. yeah, and he would haul that thing over there and then sit in a hotel room for two days to get his time back and he'd, he'd just play the hell on CompuServe, on CompuServe. He was there, you know, for hours at a time. One of the good things... Yeah, it was, it was lucky it was a 747 because if it was a 727, they'd have to rework the weight and balance on it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the good things about Beacon is, and, and this will link up, is that Part of AVSIG was that we had a library, and there were a whole bunch of things in the library. There were great circle distance calculators. There were all sorts of things that you could download and, and run in DOS and all of that good stuff. One of the things that John put up was a text file that was called Laptop Kit. And what that was was something that he put together that had all sorts of jumper cables and alligator clips and screwdrivers and all of that so that he could uh, burrow into the hotel walls through the phone plug and then connect up his modem to that. And so the first thing I did once I found that was to do the same thing myself. So all around the US and through Europe, I was running a laptop kit and this little, I had this little pouch that was made out of a canvas headset bag. And I carry that with me everywhere. It was tremendous. And it was it was so amazing when ultimately, oh my God, with hotels, I could just put a modular plug in there and it works. Shazam. That was great. But but yeah, Deacon was amazing that way. And and we yeah, should and let everybody there was a string know about of hotels through Europe that had wall plates removed when the maid service came in, right? Yeah, but oh, I put it back, Mike. Mike okay. you had one of the best deals out there because you wrote that software for that uh, one of those handheld uh, calculator oh, the scion calculator yeah it's called flight, flight master yeah and you could you know it was sort of like a uh, like a you know like a, a flight aware flight manager you know it would give you distances between points and yeah, stuff it like that. more like four flight yeah yeah sort of like four like like the great grandfather of four flight or something that was great. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you have a problem? Oh, we lost some. We lost. Uh, uh, oh, Paul, just Paul, just for a moment. So, uh, you know, we've talked. We mentioned a lot John Deacon, and I want to make sure that we pay proper tribute to him because he was there in the early days. He's no longer with us. He's a big part of of the work, George, that, that you've done at Gammy, of course. Um, you want to say a few words about John? Almost not enough that one can say. Uh, John Deacon was one of the finest human beings I have ever known. Um, and uh, I don't think I've ever known anybody that had such an incredibly high level of personal integrity as John Deacon did. Mm. 
Well, I, I remember, you know, John, one of the things that, that, that happened a lot on, on uh, AVSIG was, uh, was John would tell his, his wonderful war stories from back when he was flying for Air America, doing all this black ops stuff in Southeast Asia. And so in the uh, mid-90s, when, when I uh, uh, co-founded AVWeb, I was looking for columnists, and the first person I thought of was John. And so I asked John whether he whether he would write a monthly column. And he said, oh, oh, no. He said, I'm not a writer. And I said, John, I've been reading your stuff on CopyServe for years. You are a writer. I said, so I, it, it took a lot of arm twisting before he agreed to, to start that column. And of course, within a couple of years, he, he had this huge following, you know, because he become a legend at own time. So wonderful, yeah. But he 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 didn't want to do it, you know. He was really reluctant about about. Well, actually, Mike, I don't know whether you know this or not, but you know, he was going to end up writing a bunch about engine stuff, and he called me up and he said, "George, if I agree to do this, will you help me with the graphs and the data?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you said, so, "Of course." <laughs> I said, of course, and so uh, he was always gracious in, in attributions and stuff, but uh, Jesus, what a human being. Uh, yeah, there's tons of people who have who've, uh, written in just during this show right now about how much he contributed to their understanding of their engines and their flying and, and things like that. And obviously, he's uh, deeply connected to what you've done at GAMI. Um, uh, with uh, with that work and Mike, who of course uh, all, all your work on, on lean peak and engine maintenance also. Yeah, the two best yeah. Deacon, the two best Deacon stories I remember, and they're in the book. That that book uh, full throttle. Uh, that was written from downloading his stories on Avsic, because John wouldn't take the time to write the book. Everybody begged him to write a book, so Walter and I got together secretly. We downloaded all those stories, and Walter and I wrote the book. Using wow. His stories, word for word, you know, only minor edits. We printed the book, hardback book, had it printed, and it, at one of the uh, APS class one evening, we were sitting up in, in, uh, uh, in the library room with the fireplace going at an APS class at, in my home here in Ada, and Walter and I had a big box you know, these books sitting there on the floor unopened and we got John down and John only rarely would have a drink, but we got him one glass of red wine and we waited till he had about half of it down, which meant he was halfway drunk. And, uh, then we said, John, uh, we've got a question for you. Uh, we're going to show you something and we can't, we can't do anything with this without your consent. But when we show it to you, there's only, there's the answer is either yes or no. There's no maybe or there's no yeah. What abouts? It's either yes or no. And uh, so he he was completely had no clue what was getting ready to happen. And we unpacked that box and handed him the first the you know serial number one. And he looks at it and on the cover it's got his picture in the Bearcat and it says full throttle, and he's just stunned. And he opens it up and starts reading the introduction, and immediately he points out here and says, "Yeah, but, yeah, but," and he's he, he's wanting to change something. Walter said, "John, 
It's yes either or no. yes or no. There's no maybe. <laughs> and he looks around and he says, oh, okay, well, the answer is yes. It's <laughs> yeah, and where's the rest of that wine? <laughs> yeah. now, John was a Diet Coke guy pretty much all the time. And uh, not to belittle things in what he did with uh, Pelican's Perch and LOP and, and all of that, which was stupendous. But even prior to that, and I was a fly on the wall watching George and John and Walsh and some other folks really bring to life this whole uh, Lena Peak process and what it would take to do that. I mean, it was fascinating time in the early part of the 90s to watch that. And I learned more about basic flying from John Deacon than anybody. I mean, I, I love my instructors. They were great. They taught me a lot. I learned a lot in my own flying. But it was really John who, in so many cases, I hear him still. Now, he was typing probably a 1,200 board, but I hear him. <laughs> you know, there's there's so many good Deacon stories that it, you really have a hard time picking one. But the two that stand out in my mind, uh, and it's the second one, was uh, the chapter in the book about when pigs flew for Air America. Yes. Because he had a pig that got loose in the back of his beloved C-46 and was running a while to get out of the crate. They were flying pigs into the Montagnard Mounds uh, 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 tribesmen for, you know, for nourishment to, to bribe them into supporting the, the military operation. And they used to fly by the, the, the Montagnard camps and they'd push crates of pigs out the window at low altitude. And then they'd capture the pigs and they had enough food to eat for, you know, a couple of months. But one of the pigs got loose in the back of the airplane and John picked up the crash axe and went back and he came back all bloody with the bloody crash axe for the co-pilot to watch him put the axe away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. The best, the best one of those CIA stories was the first CIA story because he had been in Vietnam for a while. And John was, you know, was only 18 or 19 years old because he had gotten his, his he'd gotten his warbird deal back when he was really young and he was sitting at a bar in Saigon ordering a non-alcoholic beverage and he started asking questions he says, so what's all this stuff about this company and and the old timers you know from the CIA were sitting there looking at him and he kept talking about this company that we're working for so what's the deal about this quote company finally one of them looked at him and said you stupid son of a bitch excuse my French on the air you don't even know who you're working for, do you? And he said, what do you mean? He said, don't you realize the company is the pen name for the CIA? John said, really? <laughs> All he wanted to do was fly. He didn't know that the company was Air America. Yeah. Wow. Hey, uh, uh, Paul, what, uh, what kind of, do you have any specific memories of, uh, of AVSIG and some, maybe some things that you learned from that that set you on your journey? I don't know. Uh, uh, Oh, you got to get closer to Mike. I don't think we can hear you clearly. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm oh, there, you there you go. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, so I, you know, I've been involved, of course, uh, 
working in the oil industry for many years, and uh, uh, I was sometimes confused and other times amused by the explanation people would come up with how things were really working in their engines or were working in the in the fuel supply chain. And so it was kind of an opportunity to take a little bit about you know what I knew from from my day to day existence in the oil company and and, and share it with folks, and then it, it it led me to to kind of think about you know some of the bigger issues like you know, well, why are we still making avgas with lead in it? You know, that seems like a bad idea. And uh, there was a, there was conventional in, uh, wisdom in the industry that, well, you know, you, you can't you can't achieve these uh, these characteristics, or you can't achieve these properties without without having the lead. Uh, but we we began questioning some of those things, and uh, uh, I think one of my, uh, you know, I I wasn't naive, I don't think, but I I remember the uh, the FAA kind of led this let's get the lead out of Avgas thing starting back in 1991. It's only 31 years ago now. So it, it, you know, the, the program's at least getting to the halfway point, I guess. Uh, but uh, I, I went to, I, I, I looked at the transcripts of a few of these uh, ASTM meetings, and it was kind of distressing to see how all these people were talking past each other, you know, that the FAA would talk and they said, oh, well, they obviously didn't understand something by what they said. So then Continental would say something. It's like, well, obviously, well, Continental didn't understand what the FAA said. And then maybe one of the oil companies would say something. It's like, oh, it's obvious that the oil company guy didn't understand what Continental said. So it was always people talking in the circle and not even realizing that they didn't know what they didn't know. Uh, and so we would talk about some of those things on AVSEG and say, well, you know, how do we, how do we oh, sort this out? changed. I'm sorry. Nothing's changed. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, the uh, you know, I like I said, I don't think I was naive, but the first time I actually went to one of the ACT meetings in person, they they had one in San Francisco, and uh, George, I think you were at that one also, and uh, so I was there in the room, and I was uh, I was kind of watching the stuff, and I asked a couple questions, and uh, so one of the I think it was a BP guy that I knew uh, took me aside at the break. And he says, I don't think you understand what the game plan is here. You know, this is all kind of like lip service. You know, we make money on people make money on lead adapt gas because BP wasn't BP has been so many people over the years buying and selling different companies. Uh, and uh, and, and the, the whole point here is to sort of, you know, give this thing lip service. We're not really trying to change anything, you know, just take it slow, take it slow, you know. And it's like, oh, okay. And, <laughs> I kind of remember that from my very first jo job I got in, in high school, which uh, was as an intern in a union shop. And after my first day at work, they said, you're working much too fast. You need to slow it down. You're making everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> making everybody look bad. Yeah. Isn't I, it funny? It, it, it kind of resonated as being the same kind of, same kind of effort. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to, uh, to be certain about what people's motivations are. We can't even be certain about our own motivations at times. Right, Mike? But uh, I, I think that uh, some of these same themes are probably expressed among the players in the unleaded Avgas realm even today. So I, I, the Avsic folks are very helpful, and we got to such a broad cross of the industry and of the geography and of people with, with fairly detailed experience. So you might be sitting there trying to puzzle out what's really going on in the real world in your own mind. But here, obviously, gave us an opportunity to consult with others and have them come back and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. There's a little flavor going on here. So it was, I think, remarkable as one of the, the first places you could you could find uh, reliable 
uh, commenters, not just some guy on the internet, uh, that somebody that you could trust, you could have a discussion about, well, you know, what are the underlying factors here and what's happening? So it was the beginning of education. Mike, uh, did, did, did you find that that experience on AVSIG played into uh, what you've done during your career with, with starting Savvy and, and, and all of those things? Oh, there's so there's so much that's that that what's affected. I mean, we the original Lena Peak Wars were all conducted on on uh, on Absig, and uh, we we all got a phenomenal education from from George. You know, George wrote the Bible, and then John preached the preached the sermon, you know. And strangely enough, that beard really does look a lot like some Michelangelo paintings yeah. that we've seen. I, so. I, I remember what, what one of John's John wrote a lot about about power plant management and leaning and stuff. But what, one of the one of the, the articles that he wrote that that I, re, I remember was one called "Run That Tank Dry," where he was basically saying there's nothing more useless than than some small indeterminate amount of fuel left in a fuel tank, you know. So run it dry, and and I've I've adhered to that ever since I read John's article. Only only thing he didn't cover in that article that I wish he'd sort of it, it, it brought up was that you, you should try not to do that when your girlfriend's in the airplane. <laughs> I, I, I ran an ox tank dry in, in the 310 when, when my, with my fiance and she, she didn't fly with me for about two months after that. <laughs> Maybe swear to God, I would never did you, ever. Do did that. you warn her ahead of time, Mike? No, I did not. That was, yeah, that was that's one mistake. mistake. You got to you got to warn but them. I mean, okay it, was a, it was a twin engine airplane. We were way up at altitude. It was, so, it was, I mean, for me, it was like a total non-event. But for her, it was like very I dramatic. So. Quiet in that airplane, Mike. But you didn't know quiet until you got on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Scott, how about you? Do you have any special memories from, from that and how it influenced what you did later? Oh, God. Um, it has been such a great influence in my uh, teaching, uh, which is sort of my post-retirement job, uh, doing instrument advanced stuff, commercial mentoring, things like that. And, you know, to be tutored by people like Wally Roberts, who is a... Oh, yeah you know, Alpa Terps expert extraordinaire who was writing for IFR Refresher, I think, at the time, and uh, the uh, NBAA magazine and the Alpa magazine, doing really, really great stuff. Uh, and I just read one of uh, his articles yesterday about descending on airways non-radar when cleared for the approach and that this is what's expected and and how how the regs really work and Wally was just tremendous that way there are so many things that come back to mind as I'm talking to my clients about what they are doing in the way of instrument procedures and why they're doing what they're doing and what they have to watch out for I just can't really enumerate it, Jeff. I mean, that's the problem. It is part of my DNA growing up as a pilot. And, you know, there are some places like that now, too, 
Um, unfortunately, there's still a fair bit of vitriol, which AFSIC tried to lodge away in what they called the hot section, which I yeah. learned after a while is best not to read. Uh, <laughs> it made my blood boil. But, you know, a lot of people didn't. Some people got the boot, and some people got the boot, and then came back, and, 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 and such is life, and that's all 30 years behind the times now. But it's, it's, inter it's interesting that back then the, 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 the forums were, were policed a little bit, you know, and, and yeah. uh, today it's pretty much a free for all. But uh, yeah, the one the one neat thing about Beach Talk, Mike, is that as that was being set up, uh, John, uh, Tom Gresham was instrumental mm -hmm. in that. And he was very clear with the Jeffs who were founding Beach Talk that it had to be no personal attacks. It had to be real names and people. Real had name. to... I'm sorry. Real, name. real names was the trick. Yep. Yeah. And that was big. You know, the, the other thing that I remember so much are the people who are not with us anymore. And we're still writing this last week, uh, Ralph Hood, a tremendous aviation mm. humorist from Alabama, who was really a really funny guy and came to a number of our gigs, meetings mm -hmm. that we have in some location. He was tremendous. Ben Moyle, who unfortunately died in a crash, S-turning into Oshkosh. Oh, Chris I, got I got sued over that crash. Did you? Oh, you got, well. You got sued? There you go. Yeah, uh, Chris yeah, Wolf, yeah he, he, he had this, this 325 horsepower glass air. Yeah. The glass airs have stall characteristics that would never pass muster and certification anyway. Nope. And as I recall, a controller sequenced him in back behind a you know a Piper Cub or something like that. And uh, at Oshkosh. Yeah, yeah. At Oshkosh. It, it, and, it was uh, a no question about it. Uh, Chris Wildridge, who died in a bicycle accident of all things, wearing a helmet down in Taos, New Mexico. Hmm. He, he was all around a fantastic pilot with Mooney and uh, and all. And who was the fellow? He was an English pilot who flew a Gulfstream all around the world uh, for a corporate operator. And uh, sort of uh, as his part-time job, he flew a Mustang. And I think it was a Mustang. It might have been one of the Brit airplanes. The oh, it, was a, it was a Mustang. And he did a loop. And he did it just about five feet too low. Mm -hmm. And he ended up pancaking it into the ground. I came back from vacation. I, I dreaded coming back from two weeks vacation up in the woods while Absig was in its heyday because I knew I'd come back and somebody probably was going to be dead. And I didn't know who it was. And I came back, and, and this happened a number of times. Uh, you know, I was off grid, I was in the woods. But uh, that 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 really hit me, and I, I still feel that way about so many people. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned get-togethers, and we have a, a couple pictures here to share. Speak right. of the groups of people getting together. Yeah, that I think is from a row. The one of the two Roanoke gigs that we had. I think it was 2012. If I'm not mistaken, this is an Ann Humphrey credit picture. And <laughs> a wonderful helicopter pilot in the Boston area had a Robbie 22, and she did photo shoots and all of that all around Boston for probably 20 years or more. Just a lovely lady. And, and he, Barry, who couldn't be with us, looks looks a little bit 
a little bit young in this picture. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. And Barry's not with us to defend himself here, so we can talk more about him. I will. <laughs> Good. He, he may be watching. We're not sure. I hope he is. I hope he's listening. <laughs> Barry and, and Rod, the whole crew here. And the Bush everybody. And the Bush. Ah, look at that. Exactly. That was you in that. Hold on a second. That was you. That was you. Look at that photo. That's what George is going to look like as soon as the STC is approved, right? Right. <laughs> is it so? That's we were talking about that before. So, uh, George, that's the truth. That the beard is go is with the STC program. Is that correct? That's correct. Going to be there until you win the national championship of the Federal Aviation Administration. That's correct. And uh, then you'll go back to looking like this, right? Correct. With the brown hair, more of it. I think I think we're gonna, we need, need to to throw a big beard party when that happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think you can shave that beard off in in private. I think that has to be very public. Oh yeah, this is, at, at Oshkosh, right? Sure. That'd be this good. Is, yeah, this picture is from one of our Duluth gigs, which we had in Duluth because Randy Son, who you want to talk about a um, incredibly talented and experienced more than anybody in the world. in his own time. Oh, my God. Yeah. And don't try to sit in the front seat of his Cadillac with him because there's no room. It, it, I mean, the car was a mess. It was terrible. Randy lived in Minnesota. Minneapolis, and he, he couldn't fly anymore because of ear problems. And so we had this meeting in Duluth for about five years or so, uh, so that he could drive there and, and be part of it. He was just amazing. He flew uh, the CAF. Uh, God, I'm getting old. I'm blanking on it. B-29, Fifi. Out of, what was it, Fallon? Or China no, Lake, the, the the boneyard in Arizona. Oh uh, yeah, he flew oh. it out of there to the CAF to work on, and he oh. just did amazing stuff. I have more recollections of Randy. They're they're right up there with John. He is just incredible, including Randy's famous comment as a designated examiner, which was an Edper. He could do any type of aircraft, any size. And his comment was, don't tell me what you can do. Get yourself in the seat and show me. Bingo. And he's so the right. Famous, the most famous story Randy told was the night before he flew Fifi out of the desert and flew it to Harlingen, where they were going to park it. He got a stepladder and got up there with a can of black spray paint and put CAF, spray painted CAF on the side. Somebody asked him, why he did that, and he said, because this may be the only flight that the CAF ever makes in a B-29. <laughs> he flew the plane to Harlingen, and they had a press conference scheduled at a podium, you know, speaker's deal, and they had reporters literally from all over the world. And, you know, he climbs out the bottom of the B-29, and he goes over there, and they quickly put him up here to speak to the assembled press. And while he was answering questions, there was a reporter from Great Britain who, in a big, thick British accent, said, wow, Colonel Son, can you tell us how many hours you have in a B-29? And he looks at his wristwatch and says, oh, about four hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I 
which is a little bit like Deacon with his uh, Radar Connie experience that uh, was parked at Camarillo for so long. And he basically was able to fly that airplane without having any pilot certificate for that airplane. They they were able to drum up a, a flight engineer and uh you know john just had tremendous experience in piston airliners and and all sorts of stuff and and he was able to do that too so his first his first takeoff in that was about like randy's first takeoff in the b-29 precisely that's so, so question, question is you you've got to ask everybody for their most memorable story from AFSA. Yeah, I was going to add, that's exactly what I'm going to do next. So uh, if anyone has a, their most memorable story from that, whether it be a posting or something like that, George certainly wants, he's got, he's itching. So we got to go make the rounds. Mike, you've got anything? Oh, I don't know. It's got, it's got to be one of Deacon's Air America stories for me. <laughs> How about Scott? You got anything that you remember from that? Yeah, I got some. I hope this isn't what George is thinking about. But at one point, not too long ago, you know, so probably 20 years ago, maybe 25. <laughs> no, not, not too long ago equals pre-2000. I, I don't have the beard, but I might as well. Uh, there was a message posted uh, by one of our longtime AFSIC guys who had a lot of aviation uh, experience, really flying out of Westchester County Airport and uh, West Air, where, where I did a bunch of training back in the day. And the title of the uh, message was Dick Scott. This was our member Dick's announcement of his transsexual surgery operation. Huh. And it was just amazing. It was so funny. And, you know, he he was no longer Dick. And what a wonderful guy. He was just tremendous. So that, that we we laughed over that a lot at the time. And, and out of respect, we'll refer to him now as Nancy. Say again? Absolutely. For respect, we'll refer to him, we'll refer to her now as Nancy. Absolutely. It was Nancy. Absolutely true. Paul, how about you? Uh, I, always, I always like the... Uh, uh, the little naming conceits that went on uh, when I got transferred uh, from Los Angeles area to Beaumont, Texas, actually to Port Arthur, Texas, uh, I started signing all my posts on uh, a remote from Beaumont, Texas, which had several meanings to it. Uh, one of which was, I don't plan to stay here forever, guys. You know? <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the, the name thing went on. So we had, we had Chuck Kennedy and we had Susie Kennedy, all right? And so they would always refer to each other as brother and sister, even though they couldn't be two more different people. And then the other point of confusion we introduced is when we moved to Texas, we acquired a dog named Chuck. So we would always, when the dog came out, we would say Chuck, in parentheses, the dog, not Kennedy. Or if we're talking about Chuck Kennedy, we say Chuck, in parentheses, Kennedy, not the dog. And so we had all those little clarifying uh, mechanisms in place to, to, it was just kind of an interesting place to be. That's awesome. And George, drum roll, please. Well, you guys made this too easy. <laughs> so who won the mile high contest? <laughs> oh, no. Where's this going? About Barry. It was Barry. That's why I really wish Barry was here so we could. <laughs> 
So we had this contest about, you know, how you qualified for the Mile High Club. And so everybody came up with this set of rules, you know. <laughs> and, and well, but you had to be the PIC, so you had to be in control of the airplane when you accomplished the, uh, the appropriate task to join the Mile High Club. And finally, one day, somebody asked Barry if he had ever joined the Mile High Club. And he said yes. And somebody asked him which airplane. And I think what was very uh, fine, uh, either a 4-7 or uh, something else. I've forgotten. I think it was a 4-7. But what he, he was flying it back and forth to Africa. Uh, and they said, well, so Barry, you know, you mean you did this because you, you had to be in the cockpit. You had to be at the controls to qualify under the rules. And they said, so how do you do this in a, in a 4-7? And his answer was, and this is hard to, hard to say without screwing it up. He said, well, uh, left foot on the right rudder pedal on the left side, right foot on the left rudder pedal on the right side. <laughs> By the way, I have a credible source that typed in that it's a 707. It, it could have been. Yeah, could have uh, been. It's a very credible source. That makes more sense given the description. Yeah. A <laughs> very credible left, left source. Left foot on the right pedal on the left side, right foot on, uh, 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 left foot on the right pedal on the left side, right foot on the left pedal on the right side. <laughs> Never, never mind where the feet are. Would you please ask your credible source where the first officer was? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's the flight engineer. I think they both took a trip to the potty. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all we'll say from our credible source. I don't think we're getting more detail right now. <laughs> Perhaps our credible source wouldn't uh, wouldn't be here if it weren't for something like that. So um, <laughs> that's a good story. I can only imagine what that uh, um, what the rules were, but I'm sure you could post that somewhere. <laughs> oh, one more Deacon deal. Um, one time in the late 1990s, when AFSIG was still going pretty strong. Uh, I had a chance to ferry a pair of uh, amphibians, lake amphibians, to China. A friend of mine worked there, and they had a pair that they had sold over and actually in uh, in uh, western China. Had to be delivered in western China. And uh, so I called up Deacon, and I said, hey, John, I said, I'm, I've got a, a chance to ferry these across the Pacific and, and take them into China. And deliver them. I need another pilot to, to go with me, and I need somebody who's got more experience than I do to be on this on this trip. Because we'll do a formation flight for the whole thing. And it got real quiet on the phone. And he said, "Well, George, he said I'd love to do that, but I can't." And I said, "Well, why not, John?" He said, "Well, he says I'm persona non grata in China." <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" He said, well, it used to scare me to death when I'd fly across Siberia 
for JAL because if we ever had to make an emergency landing, it might happen in China. And he said, I'm not supposed to ever set foot in China. And I said, well, what's the deal? He said, well, we used to fly the C-46 from Vietnam and ferry CIA spooks into China. And a few of them got captured. And we learned later through the State Department that our names had been given to the Chinese and we were blacklisted. Hmm. So I can't fly the Lake Amphibian into China. <laughs> wow. Couldn't tell that story till after he was gone. That sounds like a long trip in a Lake Amphibian. A very long trip. I was looking forward to it, the fool that I was. Well, there isn't any, there isn't much more fun you can have in a piston airplane than a, than a lake amphibian in the water, but in the in I, the water, I, I'm I, I have three I have three water landings in a lake. You probably have a whole lot more than that if you've carried <laughs> that thing. I was told by a lake amphibian owner that was local to me that uh, that it's one of the few aircraft that can't reach VNE in any configuration. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe true. <laughs> But my it, my biggest I, problem with the lake amphibian is I'm too acrophobic to go up and check the oil. <laughs> a long trip up there. That's that's amazing. What um, I'd like to kind of go around the horn also and and ha hear a little bit about how you guys think aviation itself has changed because we don't we don't evolve a ton, right? I mean, our, the, we're still flying behind the same aircraft and the same engines if you take Cirrus out of the picture and a few things like, you know, a couple of things. And uh, uh, with the exception, of course, of the marvelous GAM ejectors. But realistically, most of this stuff's the same. So how do you feel about where we were, the conversations that were happening back then compared to now? And Mike, let's, let's start with you. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those rare people who, who use my airplane to travel relatively long distances. You know, I took the airplane to Indiana over Memorial Day weekend. I'm going up to Oshkosh. I, I, I fly the plane to Boston at least once a year to visit my sister. So I, I use my airplane to go long distances. And to me, probably the two biggest changes are for flight and uh, downlinked uh, downlinked real-time uh, satellite weather. Yep. Those two things are like total game changers. And GPS. And GPS. Well, certainly, of course, like the panels change and things. Do you think that the, oh, yeah. the conversations, do you think a lot of the conversations are, are, are the same between like the old Bolton board stuff that used to happen and really what happens now is a lot of that so the same, or is it? Or is it quite different? Pretty similar. I think, yeah, I think a lot Scott. of it is different in terms of trying to scope out how different units communicate and work with other units in the aircraft. And mm -hmm. so many airplanes now are retrofitted in almost unique one-off ways, and the integration of the autopilot and the navigator. And all of that is is very different, and there's a lot of that online. We had a lot less of that back in the day. Everybody knew how to run King Silver Crown stuff. We had all sorts of techniques and how to fly an NDB approach, 
but mm-hmm. and and that was a big subject of 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 talk and non-radar procedures and we're getting less and less of that because of ABSB out uh, mm-hmm. and more and more gets gets covered but i really agree with mike in terms of <clears throat> and then george gps is huge i had one of the first garmin panel mounted it was panel mount because you could put the portable in the panel gps is thanks to paul bertarelli who you know nod of the hat to Paul here too as being part of old AVSIG and his compatriot Russ Russo who was teaching basic fighter maneuvers on AVSIG back in the late 80s early 90s but then also downlink weather um, having you know when I got XM weather and I could see precipitation in front of me it was like people removed the blinders and I could do yeah. long trips and yeah. it was superb four flights good and having electronic charts is really great because I'm about to do a cross-country trip next week, and I had probably 20 pounds, 25 pounds of charge when I did that back in the 90s, and I'm going to have an iPad. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. But the 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 XM weather is just orders of magnitude better than anything else safety-wise. I think. Yeah. So. Paul, you've obviously uh, in in co-founding the the Cardinal uh, uh, Owners uh, Organization. The you've seen a lot of different things with what people do. It obviously, as as everybody's mentioned, the uh, avionics have changed quite a bit. That's a big change in topics, and it sounds like there's less discussion of how you fly to some degree in terms of like the the GPS makes that a lot easier, and more discussion of the avionics. And people's choices. Do you, what other things come to mind about the big differences if you were to just plop all those same threads out today versus uh, what's what you see on most of these different groups? I think there's been a big shift in expectation. Uh, pilots now expect to understand what's going on with their engine. And you know, 30 years ago, or when AFSIG got started, 40 years ago. Uh, Basically, oh, the mechanic says to uh, to put the mixture control here and set the RPM here. And well, he's a mechanic, so I'm done. You know, that's all I need to know. And uh, so there was there was kind of a double whammy. Uh, the first part is that engine monitoring became uh, uh, inexpensive and and fairly high accuracy. Now people had all this data and they had no idea what to do with it, right, or what it meant. <laughs> so. So then they would go on on uh, on AVSIG, and uh, and very often they'd be pursuing uh, uh, mindless uh, conformity or uniformity. Say, hey, I got a problem here because uh, you know all my EGTs don't peak at the same number. It's like, okay, well we don't care about that. That's that's not an important. Thing. We try have to explain why, right? Or would you please my... would you please look at this huge Excel spreadsheet and tell me what's wrong with my engine? Oh God. Yeah, so I, I think the, the huge shift there was that, that pilots, not all of them, of course, but many pilots came to think, well, this is something I could actually understand, and I could understand what the forces are here and, and, and what, what the driving force ought to be and what I ought to be trying to achieve. And then secondarily, figuring out, well, I've got all this data now, you know, how do I make something sensical out of it to either save myself money or keep from damaging my engine or or God forbid, keep from breaking my engine in a bad place in the middle of the night over over some hostile territory. Yeah, I, I think the same thing happened with weather as, as Scott was talking about. I I remember flying across the middle of the country and talking to flight service. Remember those blessed people, and they're they're telling me that 
that there's a, a line of thunderstorms from 45 miles north of some VOR I've never heard of to 13 miles southeast of some VOR I've never heard of to some other VOR that I've never heard of. And, you know, uh, you know, the cubes. You're, you're expected to have a wall planning chart hung on the side of the cockpit where you can plot all this stuff out and figure out what the heck it meant. You know, in the, yeah. in the same way, I think George is probably very gratified that that it, it only took him 20 or 30 years to, to get uh, uh, pilots to start understanding the combustion event, what's going on in their engine. I, I feel very gratified that it's only taken me about 20 years to get owners more actively involved in the maintenance of their aircraft and, and specifically the maintenance decision making, not necessarily the wrench swinging part, but the uh, in, in, instead of just turning over the keys to their mechanics and say, call me when you're done, that, that, they, that, that the owners are a lot more involved in yeah. the maintenance process now, which I think is is good and it's especially important now because we're you know we're facing a big huge mechanic shortage and um there, there, there be more airplanes than there are mechanics to to maintain them yeah you know it's funny because I, I i'll say as we approach the top of the hour going into this talk with, with all of you about the early days of avsig if i were to pick a word uh to kind of define what some of that uh, was all about. It probably would have been community, but having listened to all of you through this evening and, and reminiscing about all this, I think the word is empowerment. I think it's about giving all of these uh, individual pilots and aircraft owners and enthusiasts the, 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 all this information for themselves when it comes to aircraft operation, when it comes to maintenance, when it comes to technique uh, of, the, that they, like you said, it, it, I think Paul, you put it best that they they used to just go by what the mechanics said or what one flight instructor said, and this was a whole new world of empowerment. Uh, and to George, to kind of wrap that up, would you agree with that? That that's been a big part of it. Yeah, but so many things got started from AFSEG. I mean, gamma ejector is fine, but you know the the thing with Pelican's perch, and then later with with, uh, you know, with the APS classes and the engine management uh, and, you know, the whole paradigm on engine operation that has came along and, and, and Mike and the maintenance aspects of it, all of that stuff might not be here today if it had not been for AFSIG. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, gentlemen, I, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live because we're just trying to do our little piece of getting community together and share your stories. Uh, you, you all have a remarkable impact on aviation and community, and and uh, it, it's just great to hear a little bit more about how this started and celebrate and honor some of those that aren't with us anymore, as you mentioned with John Deacon. And um, and so I just want to say thank you to all of you. It's been a wonderful evening, and I can't possibly keep up with all the positive comments and thank yous that have been flowing in for all of you. Now you got you got to do another one of these and and, and get Barry and Jay with yeah. us too. So. I, I've, got, I've got I've got a, I've got another deal to to pitchfork at Barry. So okay, <laughs> we will do that. We will come back for part two when we can get Barry here, when J-App is also available. And of course, Barry, if you're listening, we're wishing you the best. 
and uh, and hoping to have you all all together uh-huh. soon. Barry has to play the nose flute. Ah, North Pacific on high frequency many, many times. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening, and thank you to everybody as well. So uh, we'll we'll leave it at that, and I definitely appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Lots of fun. And to all of you, as I get things set here on the end, to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening again to join us here on Social Flight Live. Uh, means a lot to me, means a lot to everyone that works together to try to support general aviation. And so with that, again, go out there, get flying, check out socialflight.com or the mobile app. And I wish you all blue skies. Blue skies.